0: Hi, listeners. Before we start the show, I just want to give you a little warning. We weren't able to control the weather while we talked to our guest, so you'll probably hear some thunder and lightning throughout the episode. It shouldn't affect you hearing anything that the guest has to say, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. Thanks for your patience and enjoy the show. childhood made easy a podcast from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life but win at real life I'm your host Sam Zabel Whenever I go home for the holidays or just for a trip home to Cleveland, one of the first things I do is start searching through the cabinets for old photos, for my old baby book, for old letters I wrote to my mom for Mother's Day. I just love looking at the history of when I grew up, what my parents' lives were like before I was growing up, before I was young, when I was young, a toddler. And it's just so interesting to me to look through this history of my childhood. I find old report cards. I find old pictures I drew. I even like looking at my old tests like from third grade mathematics, because I'm that kind of a nerd. Well, I'm very lucky because my mom is wonderful, but I'm not as lucky as Margot Bergen's children. She actually wrote a book called Navigating Life. Things I wish my mother had told me. And it's something that she wrote for her college-bound daughter, Charlotte, and gave to her the day she left for college. And it's just this wonderful collection of essays and stories and pieces of life advice that she's been writing since Charlotte was nine years old. She spent the last 20 years raising three children and working all over the world at institutions large and small. She's held senior communications positions at Vital Voices, the Center for Interfaith Action on Global Poverty, United Way, and the World Bank, and is Now at ORB Media, but I'm here today to talk to Margot about her book, Navigating Life. Like I said, she wrote, started writing it when her oldest daughter was nine years old. About the stories in it, about her relationship with her daughter, and just about the advice that I think everyone our age can also use. So, welcome, Margot. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Thank you. And I, like I said, I really loved your book, Navigating Life. I mean, it's not a typical advice book where it's like chapter one. Work advice, chapter two, how to sew, chapter three. I mean, it's just kind of like you said, you you said you uh, typed up journals that you'd been keeping for years. So it, it really reads so beautifully. Um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about to start when you started keeping these journals. I mean, what was that process like? Were you just always journaling as your children were growing up or or how did you keep all these really comprehensive records of their of their childhoods?
1: Well, What I did originally was I had never been somebody who did scrapbooking or anything like that. And I was really, really bad at sort of videoing them and photographing them. But what I had found was that I had always used a particular kind of journal for work. And um, at the very back of the journal, I would make comments about what I was doing at home or I would make laundry lists or, you know, sort of lists of things that I wanted to, you know, do at home. And then I realized when I started going back and looking at them, actually, there were nuggets in there of, you know, things I had done at work and comments the children had made. But it wasn't really until a very specific moment at about three o'clock in the morning, and I think it was either October or November of 2000, when as an act of incredible desperation, looking at the ceiling as one does, the Romans call it the watch. And I think we've probably (laughs) all been there thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do with this set of circumstances? Or how do I get through this? Or what do I do? That that series of questions that came from a place of desperation in response to a series of dramas that uh, visited me and my family. And that was everything from addiction and depression and illness and job loss and death and and two parents who had suffered their own particular forms of difficulty over the years that I looked at the ceiling and I thought, what am I going to do now? So in a sense, the genesis of the book was a rearguard action to mm-hmm. an attempt to sort out all of the drama of the day for myself and then I thought well why don't I write this down to each of them so in fact there are three books which is an insane thing to admit to
0: <laughs> oh there are three there's books other than navigating life or you just gave well
1: no i i decided at that moment um to write to each of them or that each of them would get oh. a book on the day they went to college <laughs>
0: Oh, that's so nice. And are all of them going to be published or just this first one?
1: I have no idea. No idea at all. And actually, I've slightly blown my own deadline with my son because I'm only halfway through his, but I have given my second daughter her book. So the (laughs) idea was it went from survival of, oh, my gosh, what can I tell my children about how I am navigating life through these terrible circumstances and so I started literally writing in my little—I um, won't—I won't give away the brand name because they'll think it's an advert—but these particular kinds of <laughs> soft black notebooks, and I just kept writing in the process of observing what I was doing every day and trying to look at how to survive. But I think Sam, what was interesting was that over the years, as some of these dramas receded, that the larger question took hold, uh, you know, the less urgent question took hold of um, how to craft a life of meaning. So I went from like desperate survival mode to more of this sense of, well, actually, how do I also show them how to thrive? And I think the difficulty for me in all of this, both as a mother and a writer was how do I do this in real time and how do I share this with them and what am I learning as I go along but also how am I making a record of Charlie's life as Mm -hmm. she's developing. So from a writer's process, that was kind of complicated but I just kept tapping away and writing longhand which is what I always do because my son had dropped coffee on his keyboard so he borrowed my 10-year-old Toshiba so I really had no option except to write with this particular um
0: that's so meditative, though, to get to write long. People say that's yep. so good for you. So that's yep. great. Another no, benefit of writing a book.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. And also meant that wherever I was traveling in the world, I just used to pull out my my book. And if there was an observation that I heard from somebody else, some of the women leaders I've been training globally over the last five or six years, I would jot something down. And it was only probably three years into the writing that I started to section it into, well, what would she really like to learn about work? And actually, originally, I subtitled it, How to Not Get Run Over in the workplace. Right. Well, and the, then I thought, you know, how, how would it be interesting if I could talk about how you hold a conversation that is reciprocal and has the other person um, uppermost in your mind as you're talking to them?
0: Right. And like I said, there's so much great kind of unconventional advice. But something that really struck me is I definitely had it in my mind as I was reading that this is a mother writing this to her daughter. And I just kept thinking, what if my mom had written a book to me like this? And you're really honest in this book. I mean, you're honest about your relationship with Charlotte's father and and the separation there. And you're honest about your family's history with depression and your own relationships. And I'm just curious how you determined how honest to be. Because I think, you know, something I've always grown up with is that, you know, your mom is your mom. And she keeps certain things from you. And as you grow, you gain access to more privy information, kind of, you know, as you become more of an adult, you get to know more mature things. But I just feel like you really kind of lay it all out there here. How did you decide what to include? And, and was there anything you, you were nervous to kind of tell her about?
1: Um, I think I would have been more nervous if she hadn't lived through a lot of this with me and had it be very obvious that my mother had suffered from chronic depression and I had certainly had bouts with depression. My father was an alcoholic and alcoholism runs very strongly through our family. Oh, it sounds like
0: it's raining there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sorry. We now have a a thunderstorm. Um, so yes, so what I realized, Sam, was that she wouldn't get this until she was 18. Yeah. So, and she didn't get any inkling of it until she was 18. And I reckoned at 18, to be honest about addiction and depression and to be clear that these are illnesses that affect hundreds of millions of people and that if I could be clear with her about how I, how I had dealt with these particular strands in my family, that if this was ever going to happen to her as a mother or depression reared its head, that she would have had somebody who was able to be clear that there shouldn't be a stigma attached to this. Let's have the conversations about addiction. How do we take ourselves from a place of darkness into the place of light? But you're absolutely right. I mean, there are certain things um, in this book that I haven't spoken about um, that are very particular to, to me because I'm also a private citizen as well as a mother. And there is a really interesting interesting balance in the how much exposure do you bring to the conversation. I think I have always erred on the fact of being fairly clear about certain taboo subjects because I think um, I think clarity in communication and keeping that line open with your children Makes them, gives them the confidence to ask questions. And, you know, I've always, as a parent, I haven't really wanted to hide very much from them. I haven't seen the reason to do that. And I think also being a single parent with three children, I was much more exposed to them anyway. I mean, they saw me struggling with money and just trying to keep it together with my career and sending them off to three different schools every day and trying to get home to cook them a meal. And, you know, they saw Mm -hmm. the struggle. Just to keep things on an even keel, and um, I felt she needed some kind of explanation about who I was, and part of part of who I was was the family I came from.
0: and what do you think was the most important thing you revealed about yourself that she didn't know ahead of time uh, that would help her kind of prepare for the future? Oh my God. <laughs> And that you're also now going to reveal to me. (laughs) Right, right,
1: exactly. The most important thing,
0: um, I think the most important
1: thing was how much I had struggled to to remain stable and to remain calm. That it took me a, a pretty major effort to keep it all together. And I think sometimes kids are born into the world where they think, you know, they're born into this structure and they've got, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They've got the sort of the basic structure and then they've got the the lovely things on top of it. But I think, I think I wanted her to understand the effort it takes to structure and maintain a family that is loving and kind. And I, I think she kind of gets that now. She's just turned 25 that none of what appears to be easy is actually easy that life requires, a sort of consistent effort and application. I think that's probably what I was conveying to her.
0: I think that's such an important lesson for people of this generation that, that everything seems much easier than it actually is. And like we talked about a little bit, you talk a lot about mental illness and depression. And I'm curious how you spoke about that to her before writing the book. And, you know, the book is framed as things I wish my mother had told me. So how you hope her preparedness differs from the way that maybe you and your mother spoke about it and your preparedness.
1: Yeah, that is a fascinating question. My mother referred to her depression, which was chronic and, and decades long as a wobbly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> which is a sort of a a kind of a, a almost a childlike expression. Right. I think, and um, I think I reacted quite badly against that depiction, and I wanted Charlotte and her brother and sister to understand that there was actually something more serious going on here with mental health, and I think I probably framed it in probably, you know, a slightly more uh, knowledgeable way. My mother, you know, who just died last year came from a generation where we did not discuss really depression and what it meant. We sort of got through. And we have come of age, and I'm sort of Gen X, I'm 49. We've come of age where depression does have less stigma. And it is considered, you know, a public health issue. And it's, I think, a more sort of straightforward conversation that we can have about, you know, the chemical imbalance in the brain, the ways that we can mitigate depression, the way we bring in nutrition, exercise, meditation, whatever it is to address this. My poor mum kind of grew up in a in a generation where this was sort of, you know, just shoved under the carpet and, and perhaps there might be a pill that made you incredibly fat,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know. And now I've sort of said to Charlotte, well, you know, I wish mum had had more help and I wish I had known much more about the depression. I was sort of there with her when when she kind of descended into the first stage of it. And I think the difference now in what I've told Charlotte about depression is simply to be that I've got more knowledge about it. There's more literature out there, there's more understanding, there's more societal recognition of what it is and what it means and and how debilitating it can be, that it's not just you're retiring to your bed because you like being horizontal, it's actually because you have you have a serious problem. And so in that way, I think normalizing, the, not normalizing it exactly, but, but making it less of um, less of a childlike condition, which is I think the way my mother somewhat approached it and making it more of a, this happens to people, it tends to come in families and let's be aware of some of the the indicators of depression. So basically just giving her much more of a knowledge base to deal with something like depression.
0: Absolutely. And you also talk a lot about work, which is something that we give a lot of advice about on this show and is definitely a point of anxiety for most people graduating college is, what do I do? Does it have to be exactly what my major is? You know, what if my boss doesn't like me? What if I mess up on the first day? What, what do you think was the most important piece of work advice you gave to Charlotte that she couldn't get in a career book, that she had to get from your own experiences?
1: I think the most important piece of advice is to remember that your boss is a human being.
0: (laughs) It's hard to remember sometimes.
1: (laughs) It is very hard, very sort of easy to either put your boss on a pedestal or turn them into this sort of, you know, Prada in high heels demon. And, Mm -hmm. And I think that we all come to work with certain expectations, particularly when we're younger, that that, you know, that the boss is going to, to be somebody who knows everything and who is attentive and who is structured and who has a work plan for us and who's also someone we can be friendly with. And some and some and of some of that can be true at some of the time. But I think the fact is that understanding that the boss has, you know, come from some problem at home that has nothing to do with you. So I would say probably also don't take it too personally and always be professional. Now, that piece of advice may come out of an advice book, but it's surprising to me how many people lose that sense that being a professional, which is just being able to kind of sit in your own area of expertise, to bring a certain respect and manners to the workplace, to try as hard as you can not to be too flummoxed by, you know, (laughs) the crazy mood that your boss might be in, all of that. And, of course, I think actually another fairly good piece of advice that I have sometimes but not always taken is choose your boss very wisely.
0: I loved that part because <laughs> I I just was talking to someone else the other day about what I thought was most important in an interview and I was like your boss and your coworkers matter almost more than the work you're doing at least at the early stages maybe if yeah. you could get to be a CEO one day it's different but I thought that was great advice.
1: Yeah, and I think um, you know Charlotte and I have been having conversations based actually on the book in some ways over the last six months as she just got her first promotion and and what her boss's expectations were with that and sort of how to approach her boss who was new to her new job, the boss, and uh, you know how to how to do that in a sort of respectful way knowing that in this instance she couldn't choose her boss, she inherited the boss. So it's been an interesting set of conversations as the workplace has kind of morphed and changed and the new generation comes along where you're not always at your job as long as perhaps Gen X was, which means that you're going to have to sort of navigate these changes of company or boss more frequently perhaps than other generations have. And, you know, how do you do that? And how do you adjust to your boss and manage up to them and still kind of maintain your sense of integrity about who you are and the value you bring to work.
0: So much has changed probably since you started writing this book to Charlotte when she was nine. How do you feel like your advice has held up from when you started writing the book? And and what did you sort of have to reevaluate and adjust as you went through the process of actually putting all of this advice together?
1: I think I had to become a little bit more nuanced and sophisticated about the notion of relationships. I think that uh, that's, something... was good. That
0: was sort of the subtext here is I feel yep. like yep. the the relationship advice that I would have gotten from my mom 15 years ago is a totally different ballgame yep. now.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, and, and I had to really kind of sit down as the book was kind of coming to an end and think, oh, my gosh, this is actually... A totally different conversation. How do I talk to her about the notion of relationship? And I, I start off in the book talking about the most important relationship being the one you have with yourself, right? Um, and sort of anchoring your understanding of who you are and being, you know, secure about that before you then engage with other people. And that, that was that was hard for me to really kind of think through. It It, it took me a long time to sort of work. I had to do I – mean, the, the, the joy of writing this book was that I'm actually, in a sense, working through so many of the big issues of my life in the book. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of ask myself, hold on a minute, before I can tell her about relationships, and that would be to, you know, a man who she loves, uh, you know, a co-worker, a, you know, a very deep friend – I have to do all of this working out myself so I can actually put this on paper. And so I think that the writing became less automatic for me when I had to go into this, I think, much more sophisticated area of sort of human endeavor. And um, we've laughed about a few of the, (laughs) the bits and pieces of advice, you know, When you have a really, really if you're, you know, a girl who has a really good male friend and you want to hold on to that friendship. But as you get older, things change because, you know, he gets a he gets a job or you get a job or, you know, that sort of post university sort of camaraderie sort of disappears as as, you know, work life takes on more of your sort of free time and, you know, how you balance those older friendships and, you know, and then how do you make the choice of a good partner? And, you know, I've been divorced once and had a very long partnership after that. So I am the, the poster child for having had two great relationships, neither of which ended, you know, uh, have been permanent. Mm-hmm. But giving her some advice about, you know, making making better choices based on understanding yourself better so that you can make a better choice of partner.
0: Right. And how did uh, Charlotte receive the book? Like, had, you know, did she read it in one night? Had Did you guys have a lot to talk about after <laughs> she read it? <laughs>
1: Right. So this is where the humility of the parent has to come to the fore. <laughs> so this is the first time I have ever told this story. So imagine this. She goes to university in the UK. She is standing outside her college, which was, I think, built in the 16th century. And we have just spent the day hauling up and down the stairs. There were no elevators in the 15th century. Her trunks and her bags and oh, her books.
0: The and worst. Things.
1: So we have installed her in Pembroke College, Oxford, And I said, you know, she looked at me and I said, I love you, but I've got something for you. And I said, I've been writing a book for you for, you know, 10 years or whatever. And here it is. And I gave it to her in manuscript form in a sort of brown sort of manila envelope. And she looked at me and I gave it to her. And there was a very, very long two-week pause. And then there was an email that said, interesting. (laughs) She's a girl of few words. Thank you for the book. I've been reading it. And that was it. So two and a half years go by, she's she's referred a little bit to the book. And the day that I send my second daughter her book, I get an email from Charlotte and it says, hi, mum, you know, that book you gave me, I lost it. Could you send it to me again by email? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. What I realised, in fact, was that she only really could absorb the book towards the end of college. Right. Right. She was so involved with kind of, you know, adjusting to moving to the UK and and having the book and, 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 and stuff. And what was really interesting that I found, and this is something I'm sure that my publisher will yell at me for saying, is that as valuable as the book has been, what she really needed was not my, my written words or my spoken words. What she needed was me. Right. And that was the lesson that I learned from writing the book. And we laugh about the book, and she, she wants me to actually send her a physical copy now that I actually have some. Yeah. Um, but what I learned as a mother was that all the words in the world don't matter. What she needs at the end of the day is me to be present and accepting of her.
0: Right. But as it stands, this book will be published. And if she ever <laughs> loses it, there's going to be so many <laughs> copies she can choose from.
1: Well, yes, exactly. It's It was hilarious when I got that email. I just thought, well okay, that's motherhood for you. <laughs> Minimize, manage your expectations.
0: So what, what made you think that this book, which is so personal to Charlotte, and sometimes you kind of feel like you're intruding on, on a conversation between, you know, two family members. What made you think that this was, what parts of it were so universal that you really wanted to get it out there?
1: Well, you know, originally I didn't write it to be published.
0: Right. That- Right. You know, it
1: was just sort of there. But I I think the universality of it is the notion of storytelling and intimate conversations between family members. And I think there's probably quite a fairly long sort of literary history of of the father's voice to the son or the mother to the daughter or the the notion in a sense of a diary, Mm -hmm. a diary of social and family life. So I think there's sort of a precedent there. But I think I think the universality of it is, I think, the struggle. I think we all, we all struggle with life to accommodate to reality, to be present, to be real. And I think I just wanted to share the fact that here is, here is one voice. It's not particularly unique. I have had perhaps some, some unique experiences and exposures traveling around the world. But I think I wanted to share, you know, one person's experience of being human or tr- struggling to, to, to be human and i think in the struggle people can identify with that because certainly the path has has not been very straight some of my own making
0: and there's so many anxieties that come with this generation of not being sure how things are going to turn out or or feeling just really lost is something i hear so often from people my age how do you respond to that just yourself and in the book what what do you have to say to, I'm sure Charlotte's gone through times where she's just felt kind of at a loss. And how do you feel like this book quells some of those anxieties?
1: I think, I think the book allowed her and me, I suppose, and I hope the reader, to go kind of back to the basics. You know, in life, if we're feeling lost, what can we turn to as an anchor?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We turn to our friends we turn to those precious conversations that 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 fire us up and support us. We turn to a good plate of food. We turn to <laughs> a wonderful book. We go to the basics that give us comfort. And I think that in restoring our sense of, of stability and minimizing the anxiety and just remembering why we're here. And kind of lodging that idea in your soul right. and just saying, you know what? Actually, it's gonna be okay. Let's let's look around and take stock. And I think going back to your question about the sort of the increasing sophistication of what I had to say to her, I think in the second last chapter I talk about, you know, taking stock of what you have, being of good cheer, just these simple, simple little techniques of just saying, Okay, yes, I, I do feel lost. How do I just take a step back and take a deep breath? And for me, I happen to meditate. Um, Charlotte occasionally does yoga. Normally she just walks around. Sometimes I go to the cinema, just tiny things that say, hey, it's okay. And really kind of learning how to sort of, um, they talk about self-soothing. I'm not quite sure if that's actually the right phrase or not, but just being able to say, okay. And actually, you know, going to have a conversation with a friend, going out for, you know, a glass of wine, going for a walk, just going back to basics and saying, okay, this too shall pass.
0: If you had had this book, if your mother had written this book for you, how do you think things would have been different for you?
1: I think that I would have made many, many less mistakes. I think I would have found myself
0: much earlier. Mm. And what do you mean by find yourself?
1: I think I would have had a truer sense of who I was Mm -hmm. much, much earlier. And it's really taken me a long time to kind of sort of come to a sense of who I am, what I'm capable of and what I believe in. I think I had a surface sense of that for a very long time. But I think it was only really through writing the book and going through a number of very troubling phases that I was sort of burned by the fire and came out the other end. So yes I do wish she had written me the book um, but she would have written it to me in French in the blue perfect so it would never have been published <laughs>
0: that's all that would have that would have hindered it for sure
1: yes absolutely
0: so before I let you go just on the topic of finding yourself which is at times you know the cliche of what everyone wants to do if everyone is your Charlotte and all of our listeners are Charlotte what is what is your one piece of advice on on how to find that sense of self early and and stabilize?
1: I would say five words. Pay attention and be kind. Because I think the paying attention, the being right there in your life, observing it, being sort of very present, um, allows you to live it much more richly, allows you to slow things down, allows you to listen to other people. It allows you to not jump to conclusions. And I think the kindness piece is just critical for all of us and i think if you can do the presence and the kindness and join them together you will find this sort of amazing opening to a kind of a calmness and a humanity that very that is that is very rare actually
0: that's great i love that i feel so calm after having talked to you <laughs> i think i need to like call my mom now and have her share all of her words of wisdom with me which she already well, does on a daily basis.
1: I'm, I'm so delighted she does, because at the end of the day, I realize that the only thing that I want for this book is to have a conversation between mothers and daughters, mothers and sons. And let's not forget the fathers and daughters and fathers and sons as right. well to have the kind of open conversation that we all wish we could have had and that I was just mad enough to embark on out of a place of total desperation.
0: <laughs> it's a good journey. I, your children are very lucky that they're going to get all of these books upon graduating and good luck with writing your sons. I hope Thank you, you very much. <laughs> I hope <laughs> it goes well. But thank you so much for joining me today. And we should say that Navigating Life uh, will be available By the time this episode comes out, Navigating Life will be available wherever books are sold. So you can get it at your local bookstore, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy your books. It's by Margot Bergen, and it's called Navigating Life, Things I Wish My Mother Had Told Me. So thank you so much, Margot. I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Sam.
0: Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me, at Sam Zabel, and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our editor, Tim Einenkel and our producer, Kristen Meinzer. And don't forget to review and subscribe and rate the episode in iTunes. The more people that rate it, the easier it is for others to find. I'm Sam Zabel, and I'll see you next time.